Through his provocative, large-scale projections and public art, he gives voice to ordinary people and explores issues of conflict, healing, empowerment and democracy. Internationally renowned conceptual artist Christoph Vodichko. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This is One on One. Christoph Vodichko, welcome to our show. Most people are going to know your work. They might hear the name Christoph Vodichko, maybe. But when we say that the work that you've done as a conceptual artist, these huge projections mm -hmm. on buildings, then they'll say, ah, yes, I know Christoph, I know Christoph. Why this idea of projecting, making your art so public, what is it that you want to communicate? You, you want to make it free and accessible to everyone, but the message that you're trying to say to people is, is what with your work? Well, since the uh, late 80s, uh, I'm employing in my work video, that is motion and sound, and uh, possibility of recording and editing and transmitting voices, voice and gesture, of uh, a person, of people. So, from uh, that time on, I would think that the reason is to turn those of whom we know nothing, or who are hidden, uh, invisible uh, residents of our cities, into projectors. So they can project themselves uh, on a large scale and open up to large number of people and learn, taking advantage of this kind of project, how to find words and metaphors and expressions um, to, to convey uh, often quite difficult experiences. But the fact that you're seeing people kind of talking themselves gives it, there's a real kind of authenticity about it. but. You put people talking about themselves, um, talking about very intimate, difficult moments in their lives. For, we'll talk about the work here in Boston in a minute, mm -hmm. but I want to talk about what you did in, in Tijuana um, in a project. There's a, a center there called the Centro Cultural de Tijuana. El Centro El Cultural. And, and you did that very well, Christoph. You speak Spanish? <laughs> no. <laughs> a little after your time in <laughs> Not Tijuana. yet. Perhaps. Not yet. <laughs> Over the course of our conversation, maybe I will absorb. A little. So yes. what you did um, in this border city of Tijuana is that you had the women workers who work in these factories that are usually making things that we end up Maquiladora. buying. Maquiladoras. You had them talking about their work experience, their family experiences. And let's see for our audience if they can imagine a huge building with a face that's just as huge. And oftentimes crying. These women were crying, telling very sad stories about abuse, abuse in the workplace, abuse in their families. Tell me a little bit about what that work, why that work was so important for you to do it in that way in Tijuana. Because I felt that for some of those women, it will be very important work. Um, for those who were brave enough and they calculated the risk to uh, make themselves visible and recognizable on the scale 
for example, one of uh, uh, one of them, after consulting uh, family members, uh, being uneasy about it, she decided that it's safer for her to be so visible. Mm. rather than hiding because she put her husband into prison for incest and he was about to uh, leave the prison and according to her with no doubt trying to kill her so this is an extreme case but um, there are many decisions of this sort that this project demands uh, so sort of a self-selective group of people who are speaking on behalf of themselves and also who become agents uh, who, who are speaking on behalf of others, other women, who cannot be part of this project at this moment. Because your whole idea is that you want the voiceless victims in this particular case you want them to have a voice, but the way that you give them a voice is not that you just put a microphone in front of them and say, speak. Exactly. You are saying, I want your whole city yes. to but, see this. But also, it is not enough to give a microphone to the person, to, uh, to have her uh, opening up and sharing difficult experiences in public space. It takes time. This project took almost a year of uh, recording, re-recording discussions among uh, those who were uh, affiliated with Factor X, the organization uh, set up uh, by actually federal government to help Maquiladora workers to learn their rights. But in fact, this organization, the place that they were meeting, became an informal uh, post-traumatic stress uh, therapy group. Were you there for a lot of those times? Yes. Maybe? It's not that they were conscious that that's what it is, but in fact, they brought so many issues of which federal government doesn't even know or the, is not prepared to help. So they could help themselves. So that they took advantage of uh, the uh, opportunity of uh, myself as a projectionist uh, offering, uh, uh, because of my uh, invitation by uh, um, Insight 2000, because of all of my, um, my position as a stranger, uh, somebody who, whom they could call uh, not gringo, right. but artista polaco. <laughs> That's how I remember people talking about you, you see, it's, because I was in Tijuana around that mm -hmm. time. And that's right. They were like, viene un artista polaco. Yes. There's a, a Polish They artist. choose to call me this way uh, because it was easier for them to trust me right. as artista polaco as rather than being coming from the United States. United States. So, so in a city like Tijuana where, um, where violence um, is a part of daily life, when you put these huge projections and people are then seen kind of much larger than life, the reality of the drama. Did, did you feel, and it's hard to kind of take a, a pulse of this, but was there a sense that the city healed a little bit because of this, because it was so kind of, because it was a conceptual art moment and because it was so in everybody's face? Um, it's hard to tell. Uh, 
everything that you do in the city, um, it takes time for the city to absorb and make sense of it as a, a larger uh, population. But for those who uh, offer a chunk of their life or their experience or, uh, or time to speak through this uh, facade, I think it, it was very meaningful. Uh, and so it's very important to understand uh, what does it mean that eight or ten people are speaking through the building after one year of, uh, of discussing it. It means that uh, many of the members of the families and friends were part of the project because they had to approve their participation, uh, though, or some of those people were in initial meetings, but they uh, decided not to be part, but they still they're still part of a network. Then there are uh, uh, social workers, without whom this project will not exist, who, who trust the project, and they are trusted by those people. And then uh, there is uh, editing uh, crew, and there's a projection crew, and there is uh, there are journalists, there are media people. There's an, so there is a, a, a kind of inner public that is growing from within the project. It is part of the city, right? Because you open you open right. this dialogue. So I think the project works from from within that group to larger and larger as to rumors, gossips. Then those people come to the side of projection or tests, even before the projection. And they form a kind of uh, uh, initial, uh, initials, it's not spect spectator group, but witnesses. Well, and I, I they actually... also protect, protect those who actually are speaking, because they were also speaking in real time. So you, as an artist, um, you make this commitment to give voice to the voiceless. There's an enormous amount of things that artists could do to, to be, uh, to be um, inspiring force in, uh, in creating conditions for others to, uh, to communicate uh, the most difficult things to those who might not be immediately ready to listen. Do you feel like there are young artists who are out there who understand that they want to work in the same vein? Is there support for this kind of work? I mean, when you're basically challenging society and you're putting it like you do with your projections front and center, how much support is there for that kind of critical public mm. art in America? I think the first part of your question is there are young artists who really are interested in uh, pursuing this path, maybe using different methods, and our generation is uh, developed, learning and being, being maybe critical about what we do, but definitely sticking to this kind of uh, uh, direction, horizon. Uh, the many media artists actually are doing this, uh, uh, transmitting all this through contemporary media and opening up to others. In terms of support, uh, I think we are in a better situation than we were several years ago. Really? Why? Because of the shift of the policy of the United States government. And how does, that, how does that impact? You mean that, that, that impacts in terms of funding, in terms of people? Really? It, 
I feel that institutions such as art centers, museums, but also educational institutions, uh, cultural centers, uh, they will have they have more uh, confidence now that they will receive some funds from the government if there are any. But even without direct government involvement, uh, they will be easier to uh, convince some boards of trustees or various groups uh, who are financing or helping institutions to exist economically to uh, maybe take more uh, critical angle, at least once in a while. Because before, it was more or less a culture of, uh, of a kind of political economy of silence. Really? Meaning... So, so in you, conversations so, shifted to other uh, areas uh, to avoid topics. Now, I find that interesting because you um, grew up, well, you were born in Poland, actually in the middle of a, the ghetto uprising, if I'm not mistaken. You then become a designer, a kind of technical designer in communist Poland. And you find a way of working with art in a situation where your society at that time was very, very, very closed? Uh, this is uh, very easy to, uh, to answer. It just might take a little longer. It's, it's about <laughs> my journey uh, towards in a search uh, for uh, democracy. Once, the, for some people who grew up in undemocratic environment, when the level of unfreedom was pretty high, yeah. Uh, crossing the border towards uh, the world that has constitutions and elections uh, is usually uh, an attempt to find democracy. Be when there was no democracy before, now uh, uh, people, a uh, person like myself, try to find it. And then I realized very quickly that democracy cannot be found. But there's nothing to... There's, mm, there's no gift. nirvana. You say it right. took away democracy. That I thought someone would give it back. <laughs> no, I, it, you I, were I, looking for the easy yeah, answer. I always just realized that democracy is something that has to be made, and it's something that you will never be fully achieved. In it's fact, a continuing process of uh, of chasing after this uh, phantom of democracy. You you also say you like the part of peace that is difficult. You cannot make peace being peaceful. You have to create a lot of angst, change. Because peace, for me, has something to do with inclusion of many voices and more of a democratic concept. Because peace uh, that is uh, achieved at the expense of democracy is actually horrifying peace. That I think I grew up in this kind of peace. In a kind of peace where supposedly everything is fine and mm -hmm. there's no kind of yes. confrontation. It's, it's, it's about uh, conflict and disagreement, which is a, a vital part of social life and human life, and without which there is no possibility of democracy and exercising First Amendment, for example. So we actually are into making more and more of a complex and difficult space for ourselves rather than the space completely uh, 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 deprived of any discourse. So that's a difficult project 
between seeking a peace and uh, a peace from democracy and trying to contribute to democratic process towards uh, a peace uh, that is more uh, connected with life, uh, there is a continuing uh, kind of the inner dialogue and maybe discussion. But I'm on the side of, uh, of waking up, innerving, and opening up uh, uh, voices and bringing, inserting into the public space uh, experiences that are relegated to the private realm to actually make the public space in very, with every act of speech and making a democratic moment in every act of projection. I love that, making a democratic moment with every act of projection. One of the things that you did in Boston was that you had people coming and talking about their experience with crime, being victims of crime. Um, and it wasn't very long. It's not like, that's the thing about Christoph's work. It's like it, sometimes it can be fleeting. You're not sure when you're going to suddenly see it. It might only be up for one or two days, but or, or hours even. I, I want to ask you a technical question, though, Christoph. So how do you look at a building as an artist and you're like, I can see an entire body being projected on that building and I can see that there's going to be a voice coming from the top of the building and where the hands are. Or do you have an idea of what you want people to say and then you look for the building onto which project you're going to project this? Which comes from, or is it, you never know? That's a simultaneous process. Uh, uh, I've been searching, first of all, I had to learn about what are the silences of the city. What it is that is hidden, that is not being not expressed and not exchanged. Mm. And there could be different silences, different places. So I, this is the beginning. And then I try to find people from whom I can learn directly what they are, uh, potential uh, co-artists in the project. Then, I, at the same time, I look around and see, in case of those projections, uh, what uh, symbolic historical structure is waiting there to actually be a, a kind of transmitting a tower, transmitting facade, the witness, the monument that witnesses uh, has, has seen a lot. And, uh, in uh, Charlestown, uh, uh, people who are part of this uh, uh, organization called uh, Charlestown After Murder Program, mm the women who lost the mothers, who lost the children to, uh, uh, to gun uh, battles and executions. Mm. Uh, they were telling me, uh, they actually are saying it to each other, what if monument could speak? Oh my gosh. Because the monument has seen so much. And that's and exactly what so you did, it, was yes, that you made the monument I just speak? simply, uh, <laughs> I would say, simply um, responded to this uh, hope that the monument should, the monument, of course, has more, is more just than the uh, uh, made of stone obelisk that uh, has seen uh, all of those murders and, and um, it's also built in, in, in hope for democratic society. The cornerstone was uh, placed by Marquis de Lafayette. It's a monument to the first revolutionary battle that was staged 
in hope to create uh, a, a world for, with, uh, with rights and for, right to their life, one liberty, the, pursuit of happiness. And one of the things that you focused on in your work, um, there are two, uh, two groups of people who you have focused on um, in your work that are really, really fascinating. One of them is immigrants, um, immigrants without a voice, and the other one is the homeless. And veterans. And veterans. Recent. So let's talk a little bit about the work with immigrants. You have... The uh, called aliens. The alien staff. staff. Alien staff, yes. Which I remember when I first thought, I was like, what is this? Mm -hmm. It's essentially a staff that has... It's, it's carrying... It's like a walking stick. It's a walking it's stick. It's got a certain symbolic power. Like, uh, that's why it's called staff. And it's got their memories, it's got their passport, it has, it's got their papers. It uh, has uh, plexiglass containers um, in which you could see precious relics of immigrants that are witnesses to the whole history of displacement, documents, memorabilia, objects that they might only want to, they don't want to explain to anybody, but they uh, want to have them with them. And at the top, there is a, a video monitor and a small speaker, and also there is a, 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 a device from which you could, uh, uh, that records testimonies. So it's a speaking. I just love the speaking. notion of people kind of carrying their history with them. Uh, but the history that is, they're double because those uh, uh, walking sticks speak. So they are... They're uh, not only carrying they are, the history, they're projecting they, the history. Yes, so once all of this is recorded ed and edited and then projects itself from the stick, uh, uh, the, the owner or the operator of this uh, uh, alien staff might become a mediator between the stick and the people who will approach and out of curiosity start uh, listening. I want one of those alien staffs, but before we end, we've just got about three minutes left, I want you to talk about another fascinating project, this one about the homeless. Um, again, you, you started your career as a designer, as kind of a technical designer of things. Um, then you designed this amazing um, homeless vehicle. vehicle that essentially allows the homeless person to sleep in this little vehicle that they can push, that's not a and shopping cart that they have stolen from someplace. And collect all and they the can collect bottles all and cans. So how many, what, what happened to the project? And we sell them. Right, and you, you did this project on the Lower East Side of New York City. What happened? Are, are there homeless vehicles out there still? Not right now, but it was a very um, important attempt to create conditions for uh, those who have homes, the homeful people, uh, to imagine that uh, there will be 100,000 homeless vehicles taking over the city because that was the amount of homeless people at that time in New York City. So um, that's an impossible vision. Uh, so in a, in a way, it created a perception of something that should not happen. Right, you made the homeless, that's what you did, is that with this homeless vehicle that was really noticeable, you made the homeless entirely visible to everyone. Legitimate uh, members of urban community who work day and night 
and they use proper equipment for it. They are not scavengers. And also they can say something, uh, how it happened that they became homeless if they are asked. It's quite important uh, attempt to actually, not to legitimize the homelessness, but to uh, articulate that uh, this is a legitimate problem. Christoph, it seems like what you do is you build these mechanisms, whether they're homeless vehicles or these projections, these instruments that kind of allow us to open up that dialogue. Yeah, I'm creating something in between. An artifice that uh, helps one party to open up and develop uh, capacity to uh, convey, express very difficult experiences even if the, this is unsolicited act, and the other party to come closer, open ear, without also fear of, of hearing what they hear, or seeing what they see. And so that is a very important uh, process. Of course, I start with those who have things to say of, of which uh, people don't want to hear. So this is the beginning. They are the ones who have to start this process. But without special artifice, uh, artistic and cultural project, such possibility is very hard to, uh, situations very hard to achieve. So Christoph, just in the last few seconds that we have left, what, what is the next big project that you want to leave? Mm. This is the project that I'm still uh, working on. <laughs> it's hard for me to tell what it is. Uh, but definitely I would like to contribute to, uh, uh, to uh, understanding or breaking the wall between those who know what war is and those who don't. I like to continue working with war veterans, returning soldiers and their families who are actually proper veterans as well. Christoph Vodichko, thank you so much for your work and uh, please keep us informed, we want to know. I will definitely do so. Thank you thank for you. inviting me. Continue the conversation at wgbh.org slash one-on-one. -on -one.